to a special episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Recently, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet and Naval History Editor-in-Chief Eric Mills had a conversation with Secretary of the Navy Kenneth Braithwaite to talk about the influence of history on his career. Eric asked the first question. Thank you for doing this today, Mr. Secretary. We're really thrilled to be talking with you. We're thrilled to have you in the magazine. It's an honor. Um, and I'm speaking to you as one history lover to another when I ask this first question. Um, I'm a generalist. I, you know, I might pop in the Wayback Machine to the Revolutionary Colonial Period, the Civil War, World War II, depending upon my mood, Napoleonic era. So I'm wondering, what is your favorite period of U.S. naval history, if there is one favorite period? And is there a specific event or battle or leader that stands out for you from the pages of history? And that's a fantastic question. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a generalist like you are, Eric. I, uh, I like to uh, skim through uh, and pick out uh, certain uh, topics of interest. You know, I like uh, the uh, stories that come to life through people's experiences. Um, however, I've been uh, greatly influenced uh, by the formation of the United States Navy. Uh, so uh, when I go back and I read about uh, the early years of our Navy uh, being created uh, in the 1790s um, and uh, the uh, efforts at creating the first six frigates. I'm a huge fan of those ships, as you probably know. Um, you know uh, recently, I named the new class of frigates after uh, one of the original six. And uh, I was also able to go back to the United Kingdom where I had been a liaison officer with the Royal Navy um, and seek a piece of one of our frigates that's now part of a mill uh, which I think I read about, uh, you know, decades ago in your magazine. So, uh, you know, that's a, a period of interest to me, uh, you know, the young uh, formation of the young Naval Officer Corps, um, people like Decatur uh, and people like uh, Oliver Hazard Perry. Um, their biographies are, uh, are very interesting to me. Um, I also like the New Steel Navy era, uh, coming out of the Civil War and figuring out, uh, you know, uh, where the Navy was going. Um, you know, people like Fisk and Sims, uh, Mahan, um, and uh, probably uh, the warfighter Dewey uh, all really appeal to me. Um, under kind of the uh, support uh, and advocacy of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who I think uh, was one of the, the greatest advocates, uh, architect, if you will, uh, to put the United States Navy uh, clearly on the map, um, projecting us into the 20th century in a way uh, that made us... Uh, you know, forever uh, um, the most uh, capable uh, um, Navy in the world. That's, that's great to hear. Uh, we love the uh, New Steel Navy era at the Institute as well. That's sort of the era in which we were born. And uh, the questions of the day of that post-Civil War period led to our uh, raison d'etre, which continues to this day. Um, as far as TR goes, real quick before I pass you over to Bill, stay tuned for the upcoming issue the issue in which you'll appear. There's a wonderful TR piece in there by a former Harvard grad who um, edited their historical review and is now an officer candidate school. And he goes to the roots of TR's interest in navalism. Wow. So that wow. should be right up your alley. Yeah, that will be right up my alley. You know, most people don't know that, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt uh, wrote an incredibly complete history of the War of 1812, the Naval War of 1812. Um, and uh, he was greatly uh, influenced by the early U.S. Navy history. Um, and if we would have had a Navy Reserve, uh, when he joined, uh, you know, the Army uh, to head off to uh, uh, Cuba, um, I suspect he would have been a Naval Reserve officer rather than uh, an Army Reserve officer. 
I agree. Um, well, I can't wait till you see that article. I think you're going to love it. Bill, over to you. All right, sir. Uh, those who love and appreciate history generally can enjoy it for its own sake, but the lessons of history are applicable to many of today's issues and challenges in real ways. Is there a particular era in naval history that contains lessons in your mind that are relevant to today's fleet? Yeah, so there's a, you know, a, a couple uh, aspects of, uh, of that question that have visited me uh, um, in, a very, uh, personal, in a very personal way uh, since I've been the Secretary of the Navy. Um, one is, um, you know, be, during my confirmation process, I literally found the time to go back and read about uh, uh, Ian Toll's book, uh, The Six Frigates. Um, and I was really amazed um, at some of the issues that were directed at me were the same issues that were directed at Secretary Benjamin Stoddard, the first Secretary of the Navy. Um, and the arguments of why we needed to build a Navy, um, of course, uh, you know, uh, were direct, directly in line with um, our efforts today uh, to increase the size of the Navy and, of course, uh, redirect uh, uh, the funding uh, to that effort. Um, so it seems that uh, some things, um, you know, never change and uh, trying to uh, design, develop um, and build a greater Navy, uh, you know, than we've historically had, whether that was at its inception or it is today. Um, the other question or the other um, aspect of this is um, I see a lot of synergy between the efforts of the United States uh, Marine Corps uh, under then uh, Assistant Commandant uh, General Russell, uh, later Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, to create the Fleet Marine Force concept and amphibious warfare that uh, helped uh, keep us uh, um, in the game, if you will, during the early days of uh, the island, island hopping campaign uh, in World War II. Um, the current commandant, uh, Dave Berger, is a visionary, and you've had the pleasure to meet him. Uh, he is uh, an incredible patriot um, and a great visionary to take the Marine Corps back to its roots and create an amphibious force uh, that will be more relevant uh, tomorrow um, as it was uh, relevant during World War II. So kind of back to the future, if you will. Um, and we put a lot of emphasis on uh, his vision, uh, marrying that up with uh, our distributed maritime operations and what we're doing uh, from the Navy side of, uh, of the department, um, truly creating the one team, one fight concept that was envisioned all along uh, between the Navy and the Marine Corps. I mean, no secret uh, in the last 20 years, the Marine Corps has drifted off to be land centric because of uh, the demands uh, coming out of the Middle East. Um, well, that's no longer um, our primary challenge. And so today, again, uh, going back to the lessons of history, uh, we see some of those vectors of where we need to take the Marine Corps uh, today and tomorrow. So that's very exciting. So did you happen to see the article that uh, we published in the November proceedings by General Berger about how the Marine Corps in its expeditionary advanced based operations will be part of the ASW fight? thought that was I really interesting. I, no, I absolutely did. Um, I have that uh, on my nightstand at home. And, uh, um, you know, so I'm a former ASW pilot. Right. Very interesting, uh, you know, uh, relationship there. So that's kind of good stuff. Again, one team, one fight. I'm a huge advocate for that. And I'm a huge fan of General Berger's. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, when I was going through the confirmation process, um, a retired general, uh, Marine Corps general, who was leading the effort to uh, bring me up to speed, if you will, who I had known back when I was a young uh, ensign working at the Office of Legislative Affairs on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, he uh, 
I came out during the uh, mock hearing, uh, we call it the murder board, as you probably know, yep. um, being extremely, uh, you know, an extremely strong and outspoken advocate for General Berger and, uh, you know, his planning guidance and his vision for the, for the Corps. Um, and, you know, the, and the general was very polite and very kind. Uh, as I said, I met him years before, uh, right out of the Naval Academy. And uh, he said, you, know, you might want to temper that a little bit until you get in the seat. Once you're in the seat and you're confirmed, then you can come out of the blocks, uh, you know, full speed ahead. And so uh, I've endeavored to do that uh, because I believe that only General Berger, um, as the Commandant of the Marine Corps, um, with the vision that he has, can be the architect of taking the Marine Corps back to its roots and creating a, a truly integrated amphibious force um, that was successful during World War II, that if God forbid we were ever to get in any kind of a dust up in the future, uh, that it would need to have those capabilities tomorrow. Um, certainly you can come in as the Secretary of the Navy and you can order the Commandant to do that. Uh, that's probably not gonna have the same results um, as being able to um, support the advocacy or be the advocate for and support the work of, uh, of the Commandant himself. I think Secretary Charles Swanson uh, discovered that back in 1933 and 34, again, working with uh, Commandant Fuller and uh, Assistant Commandant uh, Russell to see that same vision created back then. So um, there are a lot of similarities between what was and what yes, is. They are, right. The early the 1930s to the, 19, or the 2010s, agreed, yes, sir. Amen. All right, I'll pass you back to Eric for the next question. Thank you, Bill. So you touched on one of the main lessons of history there, I think, Mr. Secretary, and that is that um, things uh, are the same as they were before. We often have that blazing insight. And I think you can say that history is a um, story of recurring patterns, cycles of history. It's a story of eras, but it's also a, a story um, of standout individuals. And you've touched on some of this with the earlier question, but there are any number of um, inspiring and stirring heroes in naval history. I would extend this beyond U.S. naval history. Um, a lot of our readers love uh, the intrepidity and courage of Nelson, for example. And we're just wondering, who are some of the standout individuals from the naval past um, who've inspired you um, during your career? Who are your particularly favorite naval history heroes, if you will? Well, that's a great question, Eric. And uh, there's so many uh, that I could name that we don't have time, nor you have space in your magazine to include them all. Um, but I wanted to join the Navy since I was six years old, partly because my mother was such a uh, fan of a president by the name of John F. Kennedy. Um, and of course, I knew of uh, his PT boat fame. And I grew up in the Great Lakes in Michigan, and uh, I was on small boats. My dad uh, um, was, uh, was a boater. So um, that really appealed to me to be a PT boat uh, officer. Um, and so one of the greatest um, opportunities that I ever had was meeting uh, Vice Admiral Buckley. And uh, he uh, was extremely influential uh, to the point that I stayed in touch with him. He came to speak to us at the Naval Academy. He was still on active duty, class of 1934. This is probably 1982, maybe 83. I think I might have been a junior when he came to address um, our leadership class. And I remember him coming in his dress blues. He was the president of InServe at the time. And uh, the gentleman had ribbons up over the top of his uh, SDBs uh, and over literally the crease uh, on the top of his shoulder. Um, but what I remember from what Admiral Buckley told us um, was that we were about to embark, and I'm about to give this uh, talk to the midship of the Naval Academy, um, that we were about to embark upon a career 
uh, that other people read about in history books, that we were given the opportunity to help create the history of the future, that the adventures that we were going to have would be ones that, you know, the other uh, classmates that we grew up with could only dream about. Um, and that if he could, he would trade places. He would give up all the gold braid and all the ribbons and all the decorations that, uh, you know, he had been awarded over the years, including, uh, of course, the Congressional Medal of Honor. He'd give all that up to start over again and trade places with any one of us. Um, and so when you read what he accomplished in his career, starting out as, uh, you know, a troubled young ensign who really had a difficult time, you know, finding his path forward, originally as an aviator, um, graduated from the Naval Academy, was not given a commission right away because during the Depression, the only commissioned part of the class, and he happened to be on the wrong part, the bottom part of the class, uh, same part that I was in, by the way. And, uh, you know, those inspired me, uh, the lessons that, uh, that he encountered. Um, I'm also interested in a man named uh, Thomas C. Hart. So Admiral Hart is from uh, my home state of Michigan graduated from the Naval Academy in 1897 and went on to command the Asiatic fleet. And Admiral Hart was um, an unbelievable, exquisite Naval officer. He'd been superintendent of the Naval Academy um, during the 1930s. Um, he was held in very high regard uh, by the entire uh, Navy, um, somebody that everybody looked to, uh, to be an example of what it was to be a Naval officer. Unfortunately, Admiral Hart had a huge ego. And as the commander of the Asiatic fleet at the beginning of World War II, as you all know, um, he had real difficulties working with General MacArthur, who also had a huge ego. So that clash between egos prevented us from being properly prepared to defend our interests in the Philippines um, at the beginning of the war. Um, and so I had a very uh, influential battalion officer when I was a midshipman. Um, who later, Commander uh, Joe Strasser, who later went on to be the president of the War College and retire as a rear admiral. Um, he mentored me uh, and many of my classmates through, over the years, but he always told us, he said, you should carry a little, you know, little green books, the memoranda books they give us in the Navy. So you should carry one of those with you. And when you're inspired by um, an act of leadership uh, of somebody who's pointed over, you should write that down and seek to, you know, replicate that, emulate that uh, one day. Conversely, you should also write down those acts that demoralize you. Um, and so I've collected those over the years and also looked to those in the stories of others. So somebody like Admiral Hart, you pull out his career um, and look to see the things that he accomplished, which were fantastic before the war, um, and then failed dramatically at the outset of the war. Meanwhile, somebody like, like Admiral Buckley, who struggled in the early parts of his career and came back to serve for um, I don't know the exact, you know, from 1934 to I think he retired sometime in the mid 1980s, um, a remarkable career of achievements and, uh, and service to our country, service truly above self. Um, those are the unique stories. And that's the part of history that I think we need to try to bring to life. Um, those are the aspects of history. I mean, we all know about Admiral Nimitz, probably the greatest admiral that the United States Navy uh, has ever seen serve in, in its uniform. Um, and I have his portrait uh, in the SecNav's office, it's massive. It takes up almost the entire wall across from my desk because, you know, Admiral Nimitz is looking down on me, uh, you know, and I think every day if I can measure up to his expectation to help lead the Navy forward, you know, that's uh, inspirational to me. Um, but it's the stories of the others that many times we don't hear about or we don't recognize that the average sailor, the average young officer um, can... Uh, 
can identify with and therefore see their own career, um, you know, in those, uh, in those struggles, those challenges, those opportunities that come to them. You mentioned a, a real legendary figure there with um, Balkley. So that's quite an auspicious start to brush up against a legend like that, a living legend. Well, you know, and so I've also, you know, going back to what Commander Strasser had told us, um, you know, you should seek those who um, you, you aspire to be like so that you emulate them through, you know, different periods of time. So people have asked me, you know, I've had the great fortune of being a flag officer, being a commanding officer, commanding officer, flag officer, and U.S. ambassador, and now secretary of the Navy. And so who are those who are inspirational to me in those roles? Um, and, you know, so uh, Commander Strasser, of course, I would put on that list. Uh, uh, Admiral Tom Lynch, who was my first CO, I put on that list of what it was to be a, a flag officer. So when I became an admiral, I, I wanted to emulate him. Uh, ambassador Ryan Crocker, who was the ambassador um, that I worked for in Pakistan, who went on to be the ambassador in both Iraq as well as in Afghanistan, a dean of uh, the State Department. Um, I emulated him when I was an ambassador. And no secret, John Lehman is my mentor. I just had lunch with him yesterday. Every day that I serve as Secretary of the Navy, I seek to follow in his wake and, uh, you know, be as successful as he was uh, leading this great institution. So, again, those are the more recent, uh, you know, figures in history that uh, I think uh, young people should always look to a role model and seek those mentors out that can help, uh, you know, steer their career. So some of the military services have a culture that is very steeped in heritage and appreciation of history. Uh, what's your assessment of how strongly or effectively the U.S. Navy embraces its heritage? And if, you can, if it can do more, what are some of the prescribed steps for doing more? So it can always do more, right? Uh, you know, but I put upon the historians uh, to make the Navy come alive. If you've ever had a history class, which you're both historians, so you have, you know, you can sit in a class and, and you can just go by the facts and it becomes very dry and very boring. And you know, if I ask uh, uh, Captain Dorsey, who's sitting here next to me, or, uh, or Chief Bruno, they, they would tell you that, you know, probably the same for them. Um, we then, who love history, need to bring it alive for young people so that they can identify with it instead of being something that, you know, um, they struggle through to memorize dates. I'd rather them see um, the patterns of those who, just like them, were young sailors at one time um, and helped change the course of the history of the world, helping to create the greatest Navy we've ever known. Um, so one of the things that always attracted me to the Navy is, I mean, the maritime services are extremely traditional, and I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Um, you know, I love uh, all the, uh, you know, the flags that we have. Um, you know, my, my best friend's a West Point graduate. He teases me all the time. He said, how do you guys come up with such great, you know, don't give up the ship. Um, you know, don't tread on me. Um, you know, full speed ahead. Uh, you know, all of the sayings that we have um, were unique. There isn't any other service that has those kind of mottos when you look across the, the totality of our history that we can draw from and be inspired by. Um, so, uh, yes, I think, uh, you know, we have an incredibly rich history, richer than in any of the other services. I mean, arguably, you could say, yeah, the Army, uh, you know, even the Air Force uh, with the early Army Air Corps days, and of course, the Marine Corps, uh, but the Navy is, is extremely uh, enriched with uh, examples of heroic leadership and service and, um, you know, uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, glorious uh, ships that uh, we've had, uh, you know, sail into harm's way. 
um, you know, we need to bring more of that out and have it uh, be relevant to today and to our sailors who serve so they can be inspired by that. I talk to our young sailors wherever I go. And what I talk about is um, being part of something greater than self. You know, today, I think, you know, through social media and all the immediate um, responses that we get uh, by tuning in and tuning out, um, we forget that we're part of a greater legacy of those who have served before us. And we also have a responsibility today to do our best so that we attract those who are attracted to come into the Navy in the future. We build the Navy today built upon what's been accomplished in the past to ensure that it becomes even greater in the future. If we don't do our part, then as I learned a long time ago, uh, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. We don't want to be the weakest link. So I see that as a real opportunity for us to, you know, bring that, bring that alive. And Admiral Daly just sent me a letter yesterday asking me about an initiative. And I just called him back a little while ago uh, because I think there's a real opportunity in, in what he suggested. So again, we've got to make history relevant today. We can't make it some dry thing that it's in a, you know, on, in a book on a shelf. Um, we got to help our sailors identify, you know, with the, uh, the personal stories of those who have, have served in the same uniform, um, you know, many years ago. Yeah, sir, I was uh, just a couple of years behind you at the Naval Academy, class of 87, and I remember plebe year history, first semester, I had that course right after lunch, and, uh, I think, and, and the, the, the teacher, the professor, was, it sounded very much like Charlie Brown's teacher. It was wah, 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 wah. And I, I think I fell asleep in every single one of those classes. It was awful. So, you know, Bill, I will tell you this, and Craig Simons has fussed at me about this, but I was talked out of being a, a history major at the Naval Academy um, for a couple of reasons. One, my company officer didn't think that it was something that was going to be relevant uh, for the you know, future service of a Naval officer. He was wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But my history professor was, was just exactly like that. I, I wasn't lucky to have Craig. Um, I wish I would have. Maybe I would have chosen a different path. And I shared that with him recently. And he's like, why don't you come and see me and talk to me? <laughs> Um, you know, so I ended up being vectored in a different direction and I mean, I still have love for history. So, and I st still see its relevancy in what we do today from the lessons of the past, but I certainly probably would have had a higher GPA had I been a history major at the Naval Academy. Um, so, you know, I wish I could have, uh, had the opportunity to talk to Professor Simons back then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm with you. Well, Simons would have been good. Having heard him speak, he's brilliant and he gets you on the hook and you, he's a master storyteller and history has to have that you know yeah. um that's a key ingredient well uh your bio mr secretary indicates that you yourself are an am amateur historian uh we'd be very interested to hear about uh any research or writing projects you may have in the works or any future plans you have along those lines so erica that that, that is a great question and uh you know i have uh uh, off time sat down thinking that I would write uh, a book, an article about uh, uh, many different topics. Um, and I just always seem to uh, run out of uh, bandwidth because the immediacy of uh, my career, um, either running companies or being a naval officer or now in this role, precluded me from uh, really getting into the nitty gritty. Um, so mine is more from an enjoyment of, of the hobby, if you will. Now, that said, I do have some thoughts about, and I spoke to uh, uh, a colleague of mine when I worked on Capitol Hill who uh, 
um, has an interest in naval history as well. Uh, a uh, Point Honda disaster is something that uh, I've always been interested in the lessons learned, um, you know, from, uh, from what happened there. Um, I'm fascinated by Admiral J.O. Richardson, um, who was the commander of uh, U.S. fleet um, and moved the fleet from uh, Long Beach out to Pearl Harbor um, and stood up uh, or tried to uh, stand up against President Roosevelt and saying why that was not such a great idea and ended up uh, being relieved of command. And of course, uh, a guy by the name of Husband Kimmel was given that command. Uh, and then what happened was exactly what J.O. Richardson said was going to happen. And uh, when he was on the general board on the morning of December 8th, I think that's probably all he could have done to, uh, you know, bite his tongue and in, in, in frustration and say, you know, why, why didn't you listen to me, Mr. President? So there's never been, uh, you know, other than his own uh, autobiography, uh, you know, a study on uh, Admiral Richardson. Um, and uh, I'm also interested in the Panay incident. Um, I, uh, I think there's some lessons learned there uh, that uh, we should be prepared for and kind of bringing that story to life. But if I only had the time to do the research and, and sit down with pen and paper, uh, maybe one day, so we'll see. Another gentleman who nobody's ever written about is Admiral Thomas Moore. Admiral Moore, I had the great fortune to get to know when I was a midshipman, stayed in touch with him. He retired to uh, um, a retirement community in Bethesda, and I would go have lunch with him uh, once a month. And if you know about Admiral Moore, he graduated um, the year before uh, Admiral Buckley did in 1933. Uh, he went on to be a patrol plane, plane pilot um, and flew some of the first flights out of Ford Island to go try to find the uh, Japanese fleet. Um, after the attack on the morning of the 7th of December. Uh, but then Admiral Moore went through and had this incredible um, career where he was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, commander of the Atlantic Fleet, chief of naval operations, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under President Johnson. And some of the stories he told me have never been put into, uh, into a book. And, uh, you know, so there's never been, as I know, a biography written about Admiral Moore. And uh, I think there deserves to be. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing the Navy and the Marine Corps today, and how have you tried to tackle that challenge? Probably the same way that uh, Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard uh, tried to tackle it. Um, I see what uh, the challenges are to the Navy and the Marine Corps, um, you know, and I've, uh, I've seen it with my own eyes, uh, both as a U.S. ambassador and uh, in this role. Um, I've been traveling extensively to talk to our allies and partners, which I think are going to be more important than ever when we look to the future of what could be, uh, you know, a great power, a competition and a challenge to our very way of life. Um, I tell our sailors all the time that we are in the most dangerous period of our history since the War of 1812. And why do I say that? Because this is the first time that the United States is up against a potential uh, adversary. Uh, like Great Britain was in 1812, that could have eliminated the United States um, as its own sovereign nation, that we would have ended up becoming a colony once again. But, you know, thankfully, uh, there were people in Parliament who recognized that it might be better to, you know, have us as an ally and a trading partner as an independent nation than it would have been uh, to be part of the British Empire once again, uh, as well as the, uh, uh, the Royal Navy was tied up with uh, issues uh, on the continent uh, uh, from a guy named Napoleon. So I think that saved our bacon at the end of the day after, they are, after the British burned Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, and withdrew. From that point on, democracy um, was, in a, was never in a precarious uh, situation to be taken from us. Um, even during World War II, the industrial might of the United States 
was able to carry us through the dark days of uh, uh, 1942 into 1943 and to see, see us uh, eventually achieve victory. Uh, well, today, uh, oh, during the Cold War, another perfect example, um, you know, you and I, Bill, fought during those uh, times, during the Cold War. Uh, I tracked Soviet submarines, but as I came to realize in a trip to Russia, right up to the wall came down, that Russia could have never had uh, carried out a sustainable uh, warfare with us. They just didn't have the bandwidth. They didn't have the economic resources. Well, today, great power competition right in front of us. We do have a potential uh, adversary that sees things completely different than we do. Who, at the end of the day, is a communist nation um, and is committed to communism as their form of government and does have both uh, the will, uh, national will, as well as the national resources to see those um, you know, efforts come to fruition. Um, so I'm a big you know, uh, fan of, uh, of uh, General Marshall, who uh, said the only way we ensure that victory in World War III is through deterrence, is to prevent it. So the challenge for me sitting in this seat is to ensure that we build a Navy, as Teddy Roosevelt said, that was uh, not a provocation to war, but was the surest guarantor of peace to create that Navy that will provide the deterrence so that the People's Republic of China or any other nation in the future uh, thinks twice about uh, taking a swipe at us. Um, that's the effort that I think um, is most important. Uh, building uh, a future Navy beyond 355 ships with the assets uh, as part of that fleet composition. Uh, we've just uh, recently released a future Naval Force structure study and Battle Force 2045 that Dr. Esper and I um, have uh, delivered over to the White House and will soon be on Capitol Hill. But then we had to come up with a way to pay for that bill. So that's been the other challenge. Um, you know, as a healthcare guy, uh, I ran a company taking cost out of uh, hospitals and healthcare systems. And you can always find savings. So after uh, about a four, five month effort, uh, we were able to accrue about uh, 46, 47 billion US dollars uh, over the next four years to help pay for that effort. Uh, so we've got to build a greater Navy. We can't uh, have a hollow force. So we need to ensure we have the sailors and Marines to man that Navy and Marine Corps. Um, and we need to make sure that uh, it has um, everything that it needs to provide that deterrent edge. Uh, so again, um, we're never challenged um, and we provide uh, the national security um, that all Americans look to as a sacred part of the freedoms that we hold so, de so dear. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time today. It was really nice to meet you and to talk to you. And uh, we look forward to getting this into the January, February issue of uh, Naval History. So I do truly want you both to know um, that your efforts uh, are not lost. And you think you may be writing stories about events of the past, but they're as relevant today and tomorrow as they were back then for the lessons that they teach all of us. So your service to our nation and our Navy and Marine Corps I, I'm, I'm not uh, being facetious here. I mean this with all sincerity. Um, the work that you're doing really matters. And, uh, you know, um, keep up the great job. And the work you're doing is very influential. I mean, I've been reading your magazine since I was a young lieutenant, both proceedings and naval history. It's the one subscription. I've had, you know, many subscriptions throughout U.S. News and World Report and uh, The New Yorker and all kinds of different things where I, Foreign Affairs magazine. I will tell you that I have consistently received naval history uh, um, and uh, it's the one magazine that uh, you know not only do 
do I find enjoyment, but I find a lot of uh, valid lessons that uh, we can apply to the future. So keep up the great work, both of you. Thank you for that, sir. I wanted to thank you as, the, as editor-in-chief of Proceedings. Uh, we were really amazed to see a couple of years ago when you were the ambassador to Norway that you submitted a comment and discussion piece. I did. Look at that. The, the sitting ambassador in Norway yeah. is engaging with our comment discussion. We love it. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, JD and I are working on an op-ed now about light carriers. Um, we're going to, you know, pedal that around and see who, because I want to be on the record factually that I am not an opponent of uh, CVNs. I serve the board carriers. I'm a naval aviator. Um, I just think we need to augment that um, effort through CBLs, which you know, the history where President uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, saw, again, some of the same challenges where history repeats itself. We couldn't build our big fleet carriers fast enough. We couldn't get the concepts for the new Essex class done. So, well, let's just take this smaller hull and, you know, build a smaller carrier. And, you know, those ships were instrumental to our success. In the and if I can build two CVLs for one CVN at the same time, building and develop in the CVN for the future, then that's a win-win that gives a combatant commander even more resources to draw from in the future. So again, those are the lessons I learned from reading Naval History Magazine. And, you know, uh, I mean, there's that, I mean, that's the relevancy of what you all are doing. Um, and I think anybody who's sitting in this seat or the CNO's chair down the hall or the commandant's chair on the other side of, uh, of the secretariat um, are, are fools not to know um, history. I worked for General Mattis at Joint Forces Command. That man had, you know, he, he could recall facts and history. I mean, his grasp of history, not just U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps, or U.S. history, but world history was what made him such, you know, a successful uh, general and then Secretary of Defense. Um, same with Secretary Esper. He had great uh, interest and recall of, uh, you know, of history. It will always be relevant. And a smart leader will look for the lessons from its pages to apply to the challenges of the future. That's all very gratifying to hear. Thank you so much, sir. Bravo Zulu. And that'll do it for this special episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.